You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Serious talk about the sacred book. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Hey folks, welcome to part three of Pete Ruins Exodus. And we're going to cover a lot today. We're going to cover chapters five to the middle of chapter 13, which is like nine and a half chapters. And uh, that's okay. You know, we've been sort of taking our time the first four chapters. We had two separate episodes on those, because that's where a lot is set up here. And now we're starting to get really the meat of the book, at least the meat of the first part of the book. I hope that'll be clear by the time we get there, but a battle's going to happen real soon. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code NORMALPEOPLE. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code NORMALPEOPLE for 30% off and free shipping. microdose.com. Promo code NORMALPEOPLE. So I divide these chapters into two parts. There's the first part, which is five to about halfway through chapter seven. And that is, for lack of a better way of putting it, a transitionary sort of section. I really don't like the term because it sounds like it's unimportant. Every chapter in Exodus is important. Every chapter, every paragraph builds to something that the writer wants to say. So let's not think of this as unimportant. But it is a, a sort of a ramp, let's call it, to the plague stories, which is really you know, a central point here in the first half of the book, because this is where Yahweh shows Pharaoh who's who. And we'll look at that too at some length, obviously. But the, these chapters, let, let's stick with the first part here first, five to the middle of chapter seven, they bridge Moses's call that we looked at in the early chapters. They bridge that to the big action, which is the deliverance from Egypt, which is the plagues, and then also the crossing of the Sea of Reeds, popularly known as the Red Sea. But that's not accurate. We'll get to that too. So anyway, just an overview here of, of this section. So first, Moses and Aaron have their first confrontation with Pharaoh, which doesn't go well, followed by God's reassurance to Moses, followed by a genealogy stressing the priestly pedigree of Moses and Aaron. Where's that coming from? There's a lot happening in this section, but I think I just want to stick to some highlights here, just my own selective thoughts on what I think are important. And as far as I'm concerned, you really get the gist of this transitionary section in the first few verses of chapter 5. A lot of things are laid out there. So first, Moses and Aaron, they go to Pharaoh, and they say, let my people go so that they may celebrate a festival to me in the wilderness. And first of all, that gives us a sense as to what the purpose of the Exodus is. It's not simply freedom, because they don't say to Pharaoh, let my people go so we can just do whatever, right? The purpose of this is to celebrate a festival, which is to worship, and 
in other words, there's, there's a reason for this. And I, I know we touched on this way back in Port 1. It already comes up in Chapter 1. But one of the big themes of this first part of the book, Until They Cross the Red Sea, is to whom do the Israelites belong? And do they serve Pharaoh as slaves, or do they serve Yahweh as his worshipers? And there's a Hebrew word, it's pronounced avad, which means to serve, and it can have that double meaning. So the big question, one of the big questions of the book of Exodus is, whom will Israel avad? Will they avad Pharaoh as slaves, or will they avad Yahweh as worshipers? And so here, they tell Pharaoh, like, let, let my people go so that, very important, so that there's a purpose, they might celebrate a festival to me in the wilderness. Now, what kind of a festival are we talking about? Well, on Mount Sinai, they offer sacrifices when they get there. And this is in chapter 24, verse 5. It's a, what, what scholars call a covenant meal. You know, they offer sacrifices. There's eating involved. God eats. People eat. And, you know, that, that seems to be like the fulfillment of this request when they get to Mount Sinai. But jumping ahead just a little bit, just to sort of get our juices flowing here, don't forget this famous golden calf episode, which is in chapter 32. That is a festival to Yahweh. They just do it wrong, right? They worship Yahweh in the form of a golden calf, and that's a no-no. You don't worship God in images of anything in creation. God doesn't have images. And this is sort of like... It's it's a really touchy point in the story, this golden calf episode, which doesn't happen for, you know, 20 chapters. It's an anti-covenantal meal. It's a meal, it's a festival, it's a worship service, but it goes awry and it's just a horrible thing. So, we'll get to that. I, I don't want to jump ahead too much, but I just think it's worth, you know, highlighting where some of this stuff is going. Okay, so they ask Pharaoh to let them go, and Pharaoh, of course, you know, has a very understandable response. He says, uh, I don't know Yahweh. I don't know who this God is that you're talking about, and no, I'm not going to let the people go. The plague story, those ten plagues, can be understood, I think theologically should be understood, as the process by which Pharaoh gets acquainted with who Yahweh is. And that may be one reason why there are 10 of them and why they're so drawn out and why they take the directions that they do, which we'll get to a little bit later. But, you know, he doesn't know who Yahweh is. Actually, I don't blame him. You know, I'm the king of Egypt and slaves say, our God wants us to go free and to sacrifice to him. And I'm like, well, no. <laughs> what kind of a king would I be? What kind of gods would I have if I just let you do what your God says, that means your God is telling us what to do. That's just not going to happen. So it's almost like a picking a fight, sort of. That's the way I look at this. It's, it's making a request that seems very unreasonable. So that's Pharaoh's response. You have a second plea then on the part of Moses and Aaron. They say that our God, listen, our God told us to go on a three days journey to sacrifice Or what's going to happen? Yahweh will fall on us with pestilence and sword. Like, listen, listen, you don't understand. Like, we're in deep hot water here if you don't let us go. We're just going to go on a three days journey and to prevent God being angry with us. 
which, by the way, is what's going to happen to Egypt for not letting them go. That's one of these nice ironies that happens in the book. But you see, one question to ask here is like, is this actually a truthful kind of plea on their part? Because a three days journey, really? Is that is that what this is about? Um, we, we saw this in chapter 3, verse 18, where likewise, God tells Moses to tell Pharaoh, just say we're going to go on a three-day trip. Does that mean just a, like a, a big trip and they're going to come back after those three days, right? Is that is that what's implied here? Is that just left open? It's, it's hard to know, actually, whether this request is completely above board. It may be like, listen, all we want to do is have a weekend away to worship our God because we can't sacrifice to God on this foreign soil. We just can't. And it's been so long since we've worshiped God correctly. We need to do this now. You need to let us go. And it may just be sort of the minimalist request that even this Pharaoh is not willing to do. That's a possible way of reading this. And also, it's I, I wonder, too, if the whole thing about, listen, if you don't let us go, God's going to punish us if we don't sacrifice to him. I don't... I don't think it's implied anywhere in the story up to this point. And this may just be like rhetorical flourish. You know, you're confronting the king and you have to tell the story and maybe exaggerate things a little bit. But it's not exactly what God says to say. But the reader is left to try to make some sense of this. And it's not entirely clear. I think it's not really clear. Just what the point of this second request is. Other than it seems like a minimalist request as far as I'm concerned. And Pharaoh is like really digging his heels in and it's just going to go bad for him because he's really stubborn. He has a hard heart, right? We're going to see that a lot in the story. But notice too what Pharaoh's response is here. We're still in the opening verses of chapter 5, like, like 1 to 5. Pharaoh's response to the second plea is, well, it's twofold. He says, you know, first of all, well, there are so many of you, Right? Which, that's in verse 5, and that echoes what we saw back in chapter 1. The whole reason for enslaving them was that there are so many of them. And then the second part of Pharaoh's response is, well, you know, here's the problem. You guys are lazy. That's what you are. You're just lazy, lazy people. So from now on, here's what's going to happen. You're going to have to gather your own straw to make your bricks, right? The mud is kept together by fibrous straw, and that, that makes the bricks stay firm and last basically forever, and uh, they're going to have to gather their own straw. It's not going to be given to them. So this is, you know, how this opens up, and this pits Pharaoh really against Yahweh. Remember, we saw early in, in, uh, in, in the first episode, first part, how the main characters of the story are really Yahweh, Israel's God, and the gods of Egypt and their power that are mediated through this Pharaoh figure. And here you have Pharaoh just digging his heels and saying, I don't know who Yahweh is. I'm not letting you go. In fact, I'm going to make it harder on you. I don't care if your gods are going to be angry with you. I'm not going to let you go. You're staying here. And of course, the response here, poor Moses, you know, his, his earlier fears are realized. Remember, one of the excuses he gave, and a pretty good one, frankly, uh, is, is if he goes and, you know, tries to convince the people they're not going to believe him, and, you know, this is not going to go well for him. Well, it doesn't go well for him. The people grumble. 
which is the first grumbling against Moses that we see in other places in the Pentateuch. It's like a theme in the Pentateuch, the people grumble against Moses. And they accuse Moses of making their situation worse. They're sort of like, yeah, I told you so, Moses, you know. <laughs> Actually, it's Moses saying that to God, isn't it? So, listen, I'm being rejected by these people you told me to deliver. Thanks. I warned you this was going to happen, right? So, as a result of that, see, chapter 6 then follows with Yahweh's assurance that Moses will indeed deliver the Israelites. And we're not going to get into this whole thing because it's, you know, like I said, we can't do everything. But if you look at the first eh, about 13 verses of chapter 6, this is Yahweh assuring Moses, and it's a reiteration of the whole conversation in chapters 3 and 4. They repeat a lot of the same language. So, you know, it's, it's like it's going back like, it's okay, I know it didn't go well, but let me repeat what I said before. It's going to be fine. And then also, the genealogy, in chapter 6, verses 14 to 27, it's a genealogy of Moses and Aaron, but really focusing on Aaron, because it goes to Aaron's grandson, Phineas, who is a figure who pops up in the book of Numbers. So, you know, this is the weird thing, like, why... Why interrupt a story like this by giving a list of names that don't seem to feed directly into the flow of the story? And in fact, this doesn't. This genealogy of Moses and Aaron right here in the Exodus story, it goes back to the patriarchal period. One of the sons of Jacob, Levi. And the priests will come from the tribe of Levi, and from one of the Levites, Aaron, will be descended all the high priests. That's what the deal is. And and this, of course, anticipates the future, because we're already bringing Phineas into this. He doesn't even show up until the book of Numbers. So, it's it's sort of like tying this moment in, almost like a remember what where the story began way back in Genesis and where it's going. And we have an important moment here of establishing Aaron as a Levite, a chosen intermediary between God and the people. And it may be, it may be the case, that one of the purposes of this genealogy is simply to establish Aaron as a worthy partner. That's possible. Another possibility, and this is, you know, where modern scholarship typically goes, and I have to say this has always been convincing to me. I think this makes a lot of sense. This insertion here of the Levitical pedigree of these two important people, and especially Aaron, the first high priest, is a back-referencing of the later priesthood here into this ancient story. Because as, as we look briefly in the first uh, part of this uh, series, you know, the book of Exodus wasn't written by Moses. It wasn't written five minutes after Moses. The, the book of Exodus has a long history of development and of traditions of editing that probably didn't see their final phase of editing until, well, a thousand years or so after Moses would have lived, which is like around 1300. BCE, and the exile is in the 6th century, that's, you know, 700 years or so, 800 years, 
and probably even after the return from exile, this is when these books, like the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, which includes the book of Exodus, this is when they would have taken their final form. And so, what you have then, by that point, is a very well-established Israelite worship system, which scholars call a cult a cultic system, which has nothing to do with drinking Kool-Aid. It's, it's about, it's just a fancy word that has to do, anything to do with worship, like priests and temples and sacrifices. So, the Israelites have a, a, a well-developed and, and, and a clear identity as Israelites and what it means to worship God. And these stories are brought back into the distant past and given sort of a hook into these foundational times and events of the people. Of course, we don't know that. It just, it does make a certain degree of sense when, you know, here you have something that already anticipates a priesthood that involves Phineas, who shows up in a few books later. And it, it, it's, it's not, you know, in and of itself, it may not be convincing to think like this, but there are so many instances in the Pentateuch itself where this sort of thing seems to be happening. And if I start on examples of that, it's going to take us so far afield. But Genesis seems to have so many anticipations of the later monarchic period that suggests that Genesis was edited during the monarchic period to take into account current political and religious realities. And that sort of thing doesn't stop with the book of Exodus. And we seem to have an example of it here with this genealogy. So, moving on. Uh, we're getting to the end here of this transitionary period from 628 after this uh, genealogy ends to 713. And this, this last part of this transitionary uh, section here of, of Exodus largely repeats and reiterates the gist of chapters 3 to 4, right? Because here's Moses, and he says, you know, basically, you know, this is a disaster. Send someone else. I can't talk. Remember that? I'm not, I'm not eloquent enough. I'm not a public speaker. And then God says, okay, well, listen, Aaron will speak for you. See, a reiteration of what he said before. And then he says, now go confront Pharaoh. And, you know, the, Moses' inability, but then highlighting Aaron's ability to speak for him, again, that might be why you have that genealogy here, right? To establish Aaron's worth and his high pedigree as someone who's worthy to stand next to Moses and to be, in essence, a co-deliverer of God's people, from Egypt. At least that's one explanation. But genealogies pop up, you know, they pop up because they meant a lot in antiquity to establish a pedigree was just a very, very important thing before DNA tests and all stuff like that. You have to just establish your family and your right to perform certain roles and certain functions. Anyway, Back to this very last section. Actually, starting in 6.2 and going to 7.13, again, if you have a chance to look at some of this stuff uh, at some point with the Bible open, 6.2 to 7.13, the last chapter and a half of this transitionary section, may be a, a parallel and alternate tradition 
of Moses' call that we see in chapters 3 to 5. And one reason why scholars say that is because it includes two announcements of Yahweh's name. And we saw one of them in part two, that's because it's in chapter 3, verse 15. And we see another one here in chapter 6, verse 3. And this suggests that we're dealing here again with multiple traditions that are sort of brought together, okay? Like, for example, let me just flip to 315 just to refresh our memories here. In 315, uh, we read, this is, of course, God announcing his name to Moses. God also said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the Israelites, Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my title for all generations. It sounds like there's some sort of an announcement there of Moses' name, but if you go to chapter 6, and verse 3, you see here, I'll start in verse 2. God also spoke to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. Which, by the way, is El Shaddai in Hebrew. I appear to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but, my, but by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. It's interesting. See, in verse 3 here, Israel's God was not known beforehand as Yahweh, which in English Bibles mean is the Lord. That's how, it's, that's how that, that divine name is handled in English Bibles. I wasn't known beforehand as Yahweh, but I was known as El Shaddai. An example of that is in the story of Abraham. Abraham refers to him as El Shaddai. Here's the problem, though. Yahweh, that name has been used all over the place prior to this story, ever since Genesis chapter 2, which is one of the sort of key moments in the history of biblical scholarship that sort of alerted scholars to the possibility that we're dealing here with, in Genesis and Exodus and the books that follow, we're dealing with a editing together of different traditions. I know I've just said that, but I think it's important. You know, part of what we're doing here in this podcast is, you know, looking at little things that have inspired thinkers and, and careful readers of these texts to ask questions like, where did this come from? Why are we, why do chapter three and chapter six look so similar? Why do we have these things that seem to be very repetitive? And because they're repetitive, they almost seem to contradict themselves. Well, you have different traditions that are brought together by later editors, woven together, put into place, and all for the purpose of preserving the ancient traditions of the people about their deliverance from Egypt by God's hand. These traditions that are woven together like this that have been active for, you know, a very long time, maybe by the time this was written down, hundreds of years, even handed down orally or in writing, from different traditions, different parts of Israel may have written down different traditions and told the stories a little bit differently. You know, there are no libraries, there's no, you know, checking of documents on the internet, obviously, I'm not trying to be funny. But, you know, it's just, you have to think of it like an ancient person, like not everybody reads, first of all. So things are handed down orally, and they're handed in writing, but, you know, people who are living way in the north don't know what people way in the south are saying. 
And it may be not until, you know, certain times when, let's say when the North falls in 722 BC, that the North and the South really start talking to each other, because priests from the North came down to the South. And said, Here ours, here's our version. Oh, that's pretty cool. Ours is way different. I know. Let's put them together. That is a sort of a tweet version of what scholars basically think happened that resulted in books like Exodus that have these different traditions. And there you have it. See, in fact, getting back to this last chapter and a half, starting in, in 6.2, this whole section of 6.2 to 7.13 feels like an interruption to the story. Right? If, if you look at 7.14, again, this, this is a little bit too much detail if you're, looking in the car, if you're listening in the car, so don't, don't sweat it. But 7.14 picks up on the action where 6.1 left off, about Pharaoh's hard heart. And just sometimes sit down, and when you have a moment, sit down and just skip from 6.1 to 7.14, and you might say, oh, this sort of makes sense together, and all this stuff in between seems to be an interruption into that flow of the story. Now, the editor didn't really think of it as an interruption. He thought of it as, well, I'm just going to put this here because I think it's meaningful and it needs to be said, and I have to put it somewhere. All right? Don't think of it as an intrusion into the story, but it's sort of taking a break, almost a commercial break, before getting back to well, we're back. Let's talk about Pharaoh's heart and heart in 714. Anyway, all this, again, this is the Bible for normal people, and I'm not going to make apologies for looking at things like this, because part of what we want to do is engage and bring to the surface things that biblical scholars talk about that I think some of you find very helpful, and hopefully some of you also feel very challenging, and maybe sort of enlightening, taking the scales off and saying, I've always wondered why this stuff looks the way it does in the Bible. So, all this for me is an interesting and almost inevitable comment on the composition of the Bible. How it was written, maybe who, maybe when, all that sort of stuff, which is what modern biblical scholarship is trying to do. But, but anyway, the bottom line is that the storyline is clear enough, I think. But once you begin reading closely, and you notice 6.3, when you just read 3.15, and you notice that a lot of chapter 6 seems to repeat things you just already saw, not just that, but other things in chapters 3, 4, and 5, you notice oddities that for, I think, the curious mind requires some explanation, and there have been curious minds thinking about this stuff for hundreds of years. And we're doing it on a podcast, so there you have it. Uh, okay, one more very quick point about this section, and this is the last part of this transitionary section, uh, chapter 7, verses 8 to 13. The battling staffs. And this, we, we uh, were alerted to this back in chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. This is one of the signs that God said uh, Moses was to perform. But here you have this really interesting incident, and if you've ever watched the movie The Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston, this is a rather memorable moment because of the really cheesy graphics they have when they do this. But uh, and Aaron is told to uh, throw down his staff, and it changes into a snake, let's call it a serpent, and Pharaoh's magicians do the same thing, and uh-oh, they're able to do this. This isn't such a big deal. 
Moses, what kind of a God do you have with these little magician's tricks? We can do this. We also have access to the supernatural. We can make our staff turn to snakes. But of course, Aaron's staff swallows them whole. And I'm sure we talked about this back in part one of this series, but, you know, this is, this is rather significant here because it's, it's highly symbolic, right? This is the staff of Aaron being thrown down and turn into a serpent, which then swallows the serpents of the magicians. Serpents are symbols of Egyptian power, government, the pharaoh. If you've ever seen pharaoh's uh, hat, his headdress, not all the time, but at certain times in in, uh, Egypt's history, it's got those big fan-looking things off the side that look like a cobra, when it's got its neck all puffed up and scaring the daylights out of you because he's about to bite you. It's a menacing figure. So for the staff of Aaron to swallow up the staffs of turned snakes of Pharaoh's magicians, basically it's already telling us where this story is going to end. Your power means nothing. Yahweh will squelch everything. He'll eat you up and spit you out. Guys, you know, you might want to quit while you're ahead. Do we really have to go on with the templates? Yeah, because Pharaoh's hard as hard. He doesn't get it. Again, I can't blame him. He is a king. He can't just cave. But the way the story is told, it's like Pharaoh is, is becoming a rather ridiculous and stubborn figure, and you're really rooting for him to get what's coming to him. At least if you're pro-Israelite, you are doing that. See, the question is, you know, whose who's power is stronger And the rest of the story is going to make that very, very clear. Plague after plague after plague. Whose power is stronger? And it's not going to go well for Egypt. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college. You may be halfway through a career. But you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for All People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener to the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, 
Their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes. But we got them in last night. And fast-growing trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you're in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Okay, so so much for this transitionary section of chapters 5 through the middle of chapter 7. Now we're going to hit the plagues, which will take us through chapter 13 in the middle of that, which is verse 16. And here's what we're going to do. We're not going to go through each one because, again, it can't have a 10,000-week series. There's so much interesting stuff in this plague narrative. But what we're going to do is we're going to be content with the big picture. And I've got like basically five big picture points that I think will help as, you know, if you ever want to read these stories, these might be things to hold on to as you're reading through them that help orient us toward what's happening in this section and how do we understand it and what's the point of it all. So, big picture point number one. When you read the plague story, all those 10 plagues there, don't seek naturalistic explanations. And that's really, really common. I'm going to say especially, well, I, I shouldn't limit this to the evangelical world because that's really not fair. I've seen this in, in you know, non-evangelical scholarship, and I, I just don't get it. But there's always seems to be some attempt to say, well, listen, all these things sort of happened, and we can try to document them historically, and, you know, maybe the the Nile turning to blood uh, is red silt coming down from the mountains, or it's a special kind of algae or this or that. I think we will miss the point of this because the story and the logic of the story. Uh, remember, I, I, just to back up for a second, I said back in, in, in part one that I, I think that the Exodus story has, has a historical footing or grounding but the story is not told in a way that simply preserves that. It's told in ways that drives theology forward. And the theology of the plague narratives that these are acts of God. And from a theological point of view, I want to take that very seriously. I just want to read this story with the intention that I think the biblical writers themselves have. You know, we, we talked about history and the the problem of history and historicity, that fancy word that just really means that did something happen or not happen. And with the Exodus story, it's difficult. You know, it's you can't really know exactly what happened, what didn't happen. But one thing that, you know, scholars agree on, and I mean like across the spectrum, including most every evangelical scholar that I know of, they're very quick to say, well, we're not getting like a videotape presentation here. There's something else going on here. And the term that I've used before, and I like, it makes a tremendous amount of sense to me, and we talked about it in part one, is mythicized history. So you have historical 
a historical foundation or basis or kernel or something like that that gave rise to this story. Something that involved Egypt and escape and deliverance of slaves and that eventually became the nation of Israel. Fine. But the story is told using mythological categories. And I think it's really, really hard to deny that. So what you have here is mythicized history. And I talk about that a little bit more length back in section part one, rather, so I'm not going to do that here. But okay, so you have the plagues, not, don't look for naturalistic explanations, rather, let the story take you where it wants to take you. And sort of a, a moment here that, that really shows us this is chapter 12, verse 12. This is in the middle of the Passover section, which believe me, we'll get to. But you have here that Yahweh is about to pronounce judgment, chapter 12, verse 12, to pronounce judgment on all the gods of Egypt. And then that verse ends, I am Yahweh. See, this, the plague narratives have something to do with what I like to call a battle of the gods, a cosmic battle between the God of Israel and the gods of Egypt. And, you know, which God is going to come out on top? Is it the God who can't even rescue his people from slavery? They've been there for 400 years, blah, blah, blah. Or is it going to be the, the gods, multiple, of the superpower Egypt? Who's going to win? Is it the God of slaves that Pharaoh doesn't even know who he is, never heard of the guy? Or is it going to be this pantheon, this, this menagerie of gods from ancient Egypt who are clearly superior because Egypt runs things? They enslave people, the Israelites don't. So I think this is really, in my opinion, the point of the plague narratives. It's, don't look for historical explanations, but let the mythological thing hit you, because I think the point of this is going to be lost if we don't. This is about which god is superior, the god of slaves or the gods of Egypt. You know, you, you can see this, and I'm, I'm, I've gotten this from a scholar named Zioni, Z-I-O-N-Y, Zevit, Z-E-V-I-T, I forgot the name of the article, it's been so, so, so long since I've engaged it, it's article is 30 years old, but I Google it. But he has this great article where he connects, as others have, the plagues with the Egyptian gods. So, for example, I just want to list the first two and the last two, because I think it'll make the point. And they're much clearer in the beginning and at the end than they are in the middle, but we'll leave that for another time. But, for example, the first uh, plague is turning the water especially of the Nile and other waters as well, into blood. And that is seen by the scholar Zioni Zevit as a, an attack on the god Hapi, H-A-P-I, who is in charge of the, the Nile River and the yearly inundation of the Nile. See, when the Nile floods, it spills over, over into the banks and it goes on and on. And that's what allows the Egyptians to grow things and to not die. See, without, without this god Hopi, you know, and the Nile doing what it does, Egypt doesn't exist. So this first plague is an attack really on the whole existence of Egypt as a people. God will turn 
the Nile and the waters into blood. Which you can even see, say if you want to, you can think of that as God Hoppy is being slain, or at least wounded, because then God turns it all back again. Interestingly enough, the Egyptian magicians are able to duplicate this, which is weird, because why would they want to? And, you know, I'm t- again, thinking of the logic of the story, I'm not talking historically here, but just the logic of the story, why would they want to do that? And if all the waters turn to blood, there's no water left for them to turn. Anyway, it's, it's a little bit of a confusing section. But the point is that both are able to do it, but only one is able to undo it. That's a really important point we'll get back to in a second. Hi there, my name is Lauren and I'm from Melbourne, Australia. And I'm part of the producers group here at The Bible for Normal People. One thing I've really appreciated about this podcast is the generosity of guests and sharing their expertise and their willingness to share their own faith journeys in order to encourage us all along. If you've also gotten something from this free podcast, I want to take a moment to mention how you can support Pete and Jared in their work. This podcast is brought to you by members on the Patreon platform. For as little as $1 a month, you can be part of the group that brings this podcast to normal people everywhere. As a gift for your support, we have book studies, chat groups, and lots of videos from Pete and Jared. So check it out at patreon.com forward slash the Bible for normal people. And hey, if you aren't able to support the show financially, head over to iTunes and rate and review the podcast. This can go a really long way to helping others find us. One group in particular we do want to thank is our producers group, who work hard to tell Pete and Jared what they love and what they can do better. So thanks to Larry McClanahan, Peter John Evis, Terry Weir, Josh Aldridge, Fight for Together, Jonathan Lee, Christopher Zenner and Rich Spini. The Bible for Normal People couldn't happen without you. Now, back to the podcast. The second plague is the multiplication of frogs. And in the Egyptian pantheon, at least at one point in its history, the goddess of fertility, Heket, had the head of a frog. And so the question here is who controls fertility? No small thing in the ancient world, folks. Controlling water, first plague, and controlling fertility, second plague, and also water's controlled in the crossing of the Sea of Reeds, right? at the end of the story. So, controlling those things is what the high gods do, and the god worth worshipping is the one to control water to give life, but not too much water because that'll drown you, right? And also to control fertility. And so, you know, who, who controls fertility? Even in Egypt, it's Yahweh. See, this is Yahweh stepping into Egyptian territory and basically doing what he wants. Now, again, oddly enough, the magicians can replicate this but it's only Yahweh who's able to get rid of it. And underlying, well, actually it's not underlying, it's right at the surface, it's just not named. And I've talked about this in podcasts before and books that I've written because I think it's such an important point. The whole theological oomph of the book of, you like that word, oomph? The whole theological oomph of the book of Exodus presumes the existence of other gods and Yahweh's greater than they are, right? Go back to Exodus 12, 12. I'm passing judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I'm Yahweh. I'm the best. And that is a term that is usually called monolatry. Mono one and latri is, is uh, from a, a Greek uh, root that means to worship. So, basically, the idea is the Israelites believed that many gods existed, but only their god is worthy of worship. They're monolatrous. They're not monotheists. 
they don't believe that there is only one God that exists, and all other gods are just made up. You get to a point in Israel's history where they do believe that, not here. This whole story moves theologically because Yahweh is showing his might, his superiority over the gods, even of Egypt, even where the people, the Israelites were enslaved. God is marching onto Egyptian territory. The God of slaves, who has like been a no-show, shows up, marches onto Egyptian territory, and just basically just smacks them around. Okay, those I, I talked about the first two plagues, the Nile and, and, and fertility. The last two are interesting as well. The uh, ninth plague is the plague of darkness where the sun is blotted out. Well, it happens that the sun god Ra is like the main buddy of Pharaoh. That's Pharaoh's patron god, the sun god. And by blotting out, you know, the sun, it's not just like, uh, these aren't just tricks. You know, they're, they're meant to communicate something of political and religious significance to the people that God can just blot out the sun the high god of the Egyptian pantheon, and then just bring the sun back when he wants to. And the last plague is a plague of death. Who controls death? It's not Osiris, the god of the dead. It's, you guessed it, Yahweh. Yahweh controls the dead. So, you know, again, this is, this is what makes these stories go. It's the mythological content of it, which would have spoken so loudly to an ancient people. Remember, these aren't modern scientists or historians or anything like that. that. You know, frankly, I don't always think that modern history or science can get at deeper realities or deeper truths. I think myth does a really good job at that. And that's what we have here. We don't have a videotaped recording of events. We have the expression of people's faith in who Yahweh is and what Yahweh does for them. And they talk about it in ways that would have made perfect sense and did make perfect sense back then. We just have to try to recover what that sense is. Okay, so much for the first point. Second point is the creation theme. This is a theme that runs through Exodus. We t- I mentioned it back in the introductory uh, podcast, uh, part one, and it also it runs through Genesis and so much of the Bible. But the plagues, think of them as participating in this theme of the forces of creation. See, the plagues are reversals of creation. They are the introduction of disorder, where Genesis 1, God put everything in order. Things are where they are, they're where they belong, and here in the plagues, it's the disruption of that. It's introducing a little pocket of chaos, little pockets of chaos that was tamed back in Genesis 1. We have the six days, and everything is where it belongs and does what it has to do, and everything's perfect, it's laid out, it's neat. No mess, you know, no ambiguity, it's all there. Here, the, 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 the creation that was ordered is being disordered in little pockets. And then, when God is finished, after a couple of days, he restores the order. See, the question here is, who controls order and chaos? See, this is, a, again, a mythic creation theme of the ancient world, and the Israelites participate in it. The gods really didn't create out of nothing. They established order in the cosmos. They made things livable and 
habitable and they put things where they belong. And that's an ancient way of conceiving of the actions of the gods. You see that in Genesis chapter 1. And in the flood story, right? Don't forget the flood story. It's not a bad rainstorm. It is the waters of chaos that were kept separate in Genesis chapter 1 that allowed life in the air and life on the oceans and life in the land to develop, uh, to, uh, not to develop, that's like evolutionary language, but to, to be created by God. It created the space for living things. Well, in the flood story, that vault, that dome overhead, gave way to these chaos waters that God had tamed, that God had kept at a safe distance from the people. By the way, don't be afraid here to think of the crossing of the Red Sea story, because here you have very much a very clear replay of the waters of chaos crashing down on the bad guys, just like you did in the flood story, right? Noah is saved, Moses is going to be saved, all this kind of stuff. We'll get to that. But the point is that the, the plague narratives are part of this messing with creation that only God can do. Well, you know, the, the magicians can do the first two, but after that, they're done. They can't, they can't reproduce any of the others. And by the third plague, they're done. They're saying, Pharaoh, can you please let these people get the heck out of here? We, we can't compete with this God. And Pharaoh's heart is hardened, right? So, so it's this creation theme that is very prominent here. Um, who benefits from God playing and toying with creation. Well, of course, it's his people. It's the Israelites, right? And there, that's why you see in these plagues, uh, a few of them that say a distinction was made between Israel and Egypt, right? A distinction is made, like Israel's not affected, but Egypt is. The good guys are not affected, the bad guys are, right? Just like the flood, right? Creation goes berserk. Well, there's a distinction made between Noah and his family and everybody else. This, you don't have to be afraid of the creator God going ballistic with creation because you're safe. Everyone else is going to suffer, right? So the plagues are part of this large creation thing. And again, you see this in the Red Sea. You know, a distinction is made. Who dies? Not the good guys, the bad guys from water. And I think another an aspect of this creation thing that I think is so important, which is like three podcasts in, in and of itself, but I'll just mention it here, is how this, there's a theme here in Exodus, and this goes really throughout Scripture, Old and New Testaments, I will say, is that the Creator is the Redeemer. That's a theme. That's what I call it. The Creator is the Redeemer. And what I mean by that is when God redeems people in the Bible— it's often spoken of in language that echoes the language of creation. So, you know, here you have the Israelites delivered, and they're being given a new birth coming out of the Red Sea. You have the Redeemer, God, who redeems the people from Egypt, saves them, delivers them from Egypt. But doing that involves creation. See, when, when God saves the people creation gets involved somehow, and it's like it's a new start, it's a new beginning. I mean, you know, Paul says that, for example, what is in Second Corinthians, that if anyone is in Christ, um, they are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. See, being redeemed, being saved, being delivered is like being created again. It's 
Well, Paul uses language more often of like it's being raised from the dead, it's a new start. Or Peter or John will use the language of being born again or a new birth or a birth from above. So my point is that the when the creator saves, it's like an act of creation. It's like something new is happening. And of course, you get to the book of Revelation at the end where everything is created anew. And that's you know, theologically speaking in the Bible, that is actually the goal of all this, is new creation. And when God delivers people, it's like a mini act of creation happening that anticipates the big act of recreation. And I just feel like I vomited all over my computer just saying a lot of stuff here in about 30 seconds, and, and I hope it's not too much. But I, if anything, there's just so much happening in these stories that have theological echoes throughout the Bible. And we're going to get back to this creation theme because as I hinted already back in part one, the tabernacle itself is like big time major creation overtones. So much of Genesis is wrapped up in Exodus and so much of Exodus is wrapped up in Genesis. It ain't funny, folks, I'm telling you. Okay, a third point, more mundane perhaps than a creation theme or stuff like that. But, okay, there are ten plagues, right? There are other plague sequences in the Old Testament, namely in Psalm 78 and in Psalm 105. You have, depending on how you count them, seven or eight plagues, and they're in a different order. And what most scholars think, I shouldn't say most, this is the theme in scholarship, let me put it that way, that the ten plagues of Exodus might not be the original form, but might be a later literary product. There is clearly plague traditions in ancient Israel, and they come up differently in different places. And the 10, the nice round number in 10, might be more of a uh, stylized, highly literary way of looking at this. All right. So, Anyway, I think that's really, really interesting. But, you know, m- more than just that, you know, we're looking now at the plagues as literature and they're, they're uh, spoken of and written about in ways that show us that literary thoughtfulness on the part of the writer. I mean, for example, you got 10 plagues. Well, the 10th plague is like the big one. We'll get to that in a second. But the other, th- other nine are very clearly divided into three sections of three. In other words, like three series of three plagues. And you have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Well, the first one of each series, one, four, and seven, they're presented from a literary point of view in a very similar way. Like there's always a forewarning given about what's going to happen. And even... The time of the warning is in the morning. And then there's an instruction given by God, you know, station yourself or go stand before Pharaoh. Well, that's one, four, and seven, but the next ones in each sequence, two, there's a lot of math here, sorry folks, two, five, and eight, well, they have their own, I'm not going to get into all the details, they have their own way of introducing those plagues. And likewise, the last plague of each series, three, six, and nine, is the most, uh, is, is, is the shortest. There's like no 
introductions to it. It's just like the, no talking to Moses around. It just sort of happens by God. So each of the three have their own like way of you know talking, their own way of expressing. This is this is clearly a literary device. Now the purpose of which, who knows? I have no idea. Can't ask anybody. But the purpose of having this three groups of three that are so clearly identical in how they're presented is, if anything, just evidence of literary intentionality on the part of the writers. In other words, they're not just saying, hey, let's, let's write history here. Let's just lay it out there the way things happen. No, they're not doing that. They're telling a story, and part of it is just literary artifice, they call it, literary beauty, just intentionality, thoughtfulness. These weren't people just throwing stuff out there and saying, ah, I hope this works. They're actually writing something with literary intentionality. But you see, that affects the degree of history that you find here too, right? If you start playing with the literary presentation, you're clearly not focused on simply reproducing the facts, so to speak. And, you know, if that troubles you, that's fine, but it shouldn't. It just, well, you know, it doesn't matter if it troubles me or you, because this is how the Bible's working. This is how the Bible actually works, to quote a book title. So, you know, there you have it, and we just have to deal with it and, and, and try to put the pieces together, which might take time. You know, it's something you have to think about, but don't lose sleep over it. And anyway, the, the, the plague of death then, which is the last plague, that's the crescendo. That is, that's the crowning plague. That's the one that results in the Israelites being released from Egyptian slavery. The first nine get you to the tenth. And those three are, you know, those three groups are, are presented the way they are, then you get to the last one. So there's literary intentionality. You also have a progression, at least some see this, and I, th I think there's something to this, a progression in severity, like when you get to the plague of boils, which is the sixth plague, this is the first that actually affects uh, humans. You know, up until then, it's sort of indirectly, but this is one that actually physically affects humans, like Job had boils and things like that. And then, you know, the end of it is people die, right? So you have a progression in severity. I, I'm not sure if I think that's really helpful. I'm just throwing it out there because a lot of people say this, because I think the first one is pretty severe, at least in its symbolic value right the nile turning to blood but that only that goes away after 3 days see the last plague the plague of death that doesn't go away after 3 days when you're dead you're dead even back in biblical days right this is the story of the one as a maintenance engineer he hears things differently to the untrained ear everything on his shop floor might sound fine but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping so he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand and he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. So, okay, that those are three. That's the third of the big picture points. Here's the fourth. And this has to do with something that, I mean, students ask me this when we talk about Exodus all the time. It's the whole idea of God hardens. Pharaoh's heart, specifically in the last three plagues, 8, 9, and 10. And this brings together 
this idea brings together something that we looked at briefly in part two of the of podcast, 319, right, where Pharaoh says, listen, I'm going to send Moses, I'm going to send you to them, but you know what, they're not going to, Pharaoh's not going to listen to you unless you perform all these wonders and signs, right? So the plagues, the purpose of the plagues are that they will convince Pharaoh to let the people go. But then the next chapter, remember 421, God says, you know, yeah, I'm going to send you there, but I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart so he doesn't let you go. See, in, in the first one, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. It needs to be softened by the plagues. But here, it's like in 421, rather, it's, well, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart so he doesn't let the people go. And that is seen by some as a contradiction. I'm just going to say it's definitely not. The whole point of this is that of God's not done with Pharaoh yet, right? So, you've got these 10 plagues, and at a certain point, by the time you get to like plagues 3 and, and 4, you have uh, Pharaoh, he... Basically, he well, and 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 already in in the second plague, in the plague of frogs, Pharaoh sort of begs <laughs> Moses, "Can you just lay off here?" Um, and then he hardens his heart, right? And like in the third plague, he begs, but then he hardens his own heart, and he hardens his own, own heart again with the plague of the livestock, which is what is it? One, two, three, four, five. The fifth plague. He he. He hardens his own heart, and his heart becomes hardened, and all these things. But God's not doing it. You see, Pharaoh, he freaks out after the second plague, and he says, okay, listen, um, can you just get out of here? But then he hardens his own heart. And this is the thing. This is, this is 319. Listen, he needs to have his heart softened. The plagues are going to do it. You wonder, when is this going to finally happen? And... It happens finally in the plague of locusts, which is eight, the plague of darkness, which is nine, and then the plague, the death of the firstborn, which is the tenth plague. Here you have Pharaoh begging God, begging Moses to talk to God and say, relent and just leave. I can't do this anymore. He's, he's finally and completely had it. And here, unlike before, Pharaoh doesn't harden his own heart, or his heart doesn't, quote, just become hard. Here, it's God hardens Pharaoh's heart. See, both those things that are like contradictory in chapter 3 and chapter 4, they're just two different parts of the story. The first seven plagues, you have what 319 says, Pharaoh is going to need to be convinced. 421, but even after he's convinced, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. It sounds really unfair. Like, why would God do that to people? Well, first of all, don't forget this is a story, number one. Number two, how God here acts towards Pharaoh theologically has nothing to do with how he acts towards you or anybody else. This, this is part of the story where God is basically here. The way I put it this way with, with my students is that God is playing a cat and mouse game with Pharaoh. Have you ever seen a cat and We've seen this more than once. A cat catches a mouse, and it plays with it, and then it revives it so it can keep playing with it, and eventually it kills it. I see here this, this idea of God hardening Pharaoh's heart 
as simply an indication that Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt, by extension, are Yahweh's plaything. Hey, Pharaoh, you had trouble knowing who I was earlier. Do you know me now? Who's your daddy? I think that's sort of how I read this last sequence of plagues, these last three plagues. And perhaps, and again, I'm thinking here of like the composition of the book and how so much of this has to do with Israel and the land and keeping the land and what to do with foreign people. Maybe this drawing out of this story over 10 plagues like this is an object lesson for the Israelites for their life in the land of Canaan, where the temptation is what? It's always to worship the gods of Canaan. So you can always look at this story and say, remember our past and how patiently God dealt with us and how, how God drew out this decimation of the Egyptian pantheon and it's the same God we're dealing with here today. So it, it could act as an object lesson. I think it probably does. But in any event, here is Israel's God defeating the gods of Egypt, playing with them, toying with them. And the bottom line, I think, is really this. It's, again, it's monolatry. Israel's God alone is worthy of worship. The other gods, by comparison, are ridiculous. And I think that's what this fourth, you know, big picture point that God hardens Pharaoh's heart, I think that's what it's getting across. I don't think it should cause like a major theological crisis. Like, uh, why would God harden people who are repenting? He's not repenting. This, that's not, this is not a Christian story. You know, this isn't about, you know, accepting Jesus and all that stuff. This is, this is not about becoming an Israelite. This is an ancient Israelite story of a people group, a geopolitical reality, the Israelites, vis-a-vis the other nations, in the context of a hostile, violent, tribalistic worldview. And this God is all about protecting his people. That's what he does. And that's why he's worthy of worship. Okay, last one. Last big picture point is the long Passover section Starts in 11.1, and it goes to the end of this section, 13.16, three and a half chapters. And, you know, this is really, oh gosh, dealing with this is a separate episode, folks. It really is. I mean, if we really, really want to do it, maybe one day we will. I'll come back to it, blah, blah, blah. But for the purposes of this podcast series, we don't have to talk about everything. But just to notice, you know, how long this Passover section is, and the Passover here is obviously the focus. It's the focus of the section. But wedged into this discussion is where you find the 10th plague. That's in, again, if you have a Bible open, this is great. But it's at 11, chapter 11, verses 1 to 10, and then chapter 12, verses 29 to 32. You sort of have a little bit of, you know, uh, here's the 10th plague, a little bit of action, 10th plague, a little Passover, this stuff, back and forth. It's, it's a real complex section here of the book of Exodus. I mean, historically complex, weaving together three, or some scholars think as many as four separate traditions coming together here that results in some oddities that 
again, if we started talking about them, we'd be here for another five hours. I just don't want to do that here. But it results in some oddities that um, that just make you notice that, oh, my goodness gracious, this, this section is a little bit inconsistent. I'm not really sure what's going on here. But that's not the point. The point is that you have the focus of the Passover, and there are three or four traditions that are all getting involved in this because the Passover was a major, major moment in Israelite worship and Israelite identity. So, Passover is the focus of this section 11 to 13, uh, verse 16, and the other stuff like the 10th plague and the departure from Egypt, also that's in 1233 to 42, those things are sort of woven into that, right? The, the star of this section is Passover, it's not the 10th plague. 10th plague serves the Passover. The departure serves the Passover, the Passover is the thing. It is establishing the section, a ritual festival, or again, forgive me folks, what I said earlier holds here too, it may be, and it, I think it probably is, this is my opinion, that this section of Exodus is really back-referencing later Israelite cultic worship realities that revolve around festivals like the Passover festival. Later realities affect how this story of Exodus is written. Exodus was written with the monarchy already probably in the past, written with the Babylonian captivity already in the past, not made up at that point in time. I've said this before. It's not like the Exodus story is made up, let's say, in the 6th century. There are traditions. We have multiple traditions, but they're ironed out. They're put together here. And the way the story of Exodus is told with elaborate preparations for festivals that have some tensions between them in various parts of this section, that, you know, it, su it suggests that this story in Exodus reflects later realities. That's really what I'm getting at. And again, this is, if you've read some of my books or, or are familiar with biblical scholarship or if you've even heard podcasts here, this is not a daring conclusion to come to. You have a history of development of these texts, and what we have is not the original version of anything, it's a later edited version on the part of the people of Judah who returned from exile from Babylon. Yeah, when I really started, that started to click with me, a lot of things fell into place, but anyway. Okay, anyway, what, is, what does Passover mean? Just, just we're on the Passover here. You know, to pass over better probably means something like to protect, and not from, you know, the angel of death, you see this in, in, in 1223, it, it basically, this is not the angel of death. It, later, Israelite theology has an angel that's responsible for death, but this is not here. Uh, the Hebrew is, he's a destroyer. And we don't know what this is, but we do know later in the story in chapter 12, this destroyer's, uh, destroyer is equated with Yahweh. So, I'm just saying, like, in, it, I'm always thinking of the Ten Commandments movie with Charlton Huston where it's an angel of death. There's no angel of death. It's basically Yahweh doing the destroying. And, but you see that again, I got to be careful here because in Psalm 78, which talks about the plagues, it refers to a destroying or bad angels, plural, which see is another tradition. That's my point. You've got, you've got 
a destroying angel or angels in Psalm 78, and you have a destroyer who's Yahweh here in this, like, which is it? Well, I don't know. You know, just in the logic of the story, I don't know. But what I do know is that the Bible preserves multiple traditions, multiple interpretations of these pivotal moments in Israel's life. And I just don't feel it's my business to try to even them out. In fact, I don't think it's anybody's business to even them out. They're just there. Now, of course, uh, as you probably know, the, the Passover, the actual sign of the Passover uh, that will tell the destroyer to bypass a house is if you put the blood of the lamb on the lintel and then on the doorposts. And, and I just want to echo here that there are other signs in the Bible. There seem to be a lot of signs that indicate that you're in. And the other big one in the Old Testament is circumcision. Circumcision is a sign that you're an insider, not an outsider. Here, you know, when death is on the line, the sign that you're an insider, not an outsider, is blood around your home. So the destroyer will pass by. And, you know, I think jumping to Jesus and the New Testament, all that kind of stuff, it's, you know, the sign that, you know, you're in is, uh, how do I put this in, in language? It doesn't sound too schmaltzy. It's, it's, you identify with the blood of the lamb. That is your sign that you're an insider to this gospel, to this kingdom of heaven that Jesus built. So Passover, you know, is very much used, obviously, in the New Testament. This is for Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, the Last Supper is the Passover meal. For John, it's not. John has a different take on on the Passover and on the Last Supper, but don't worry about that. But in the, the, the those three Gospels, the, the you know the Jesus thing, the crucifixion is tied very much to the Passover meal, and uh, you know for for obvious reasons, I think theologically, the shedding of blood and the efficacy of that shed blood. Although I don't want to say it's to shield us from God killing us in the New Testament. I think it does take on a different significance. But again, that's another 17 podcast. Won't do all that here. Uh, one last point about the Passover. And this is, this is a little bit off the beaten path, and I'll be rather brief about this. But in the Old Testament, God has a right to the firstborn. The firstborn belong to him. And you see this in this section, if you read you know, chapters 12 and 13, that the firstborn belong to me. But you know what? You can substitute something for that firstborn. For example, if you can substitute some sort of a sheep or something, you know, you can substitute another animal for the firstborn, but the firstborn belongs to me, including, folks, the firstborn human, the firstborn of your own family belongs to me. God has a right to that firstborn, but God accepts substitutes. And that really strikes me because you, one way of looking at the plague of death is basically God just exercising his right to the firstborn. Yeah. He just, and see, that includes the Egyptian firstborn. They belong to him, too. That's the point. The firstborn belong to God. This is, this is not uncommon in the ancient world. You know, the, the prized elder children, they belong to God. The prized of the flock, they belong to God. And, you know, it's, think, for example, of the binding of Isaac back in Genesis 22, right? 
God tells Abraham, take your son and sacrifice him to me. God is claiming his right on the firstborn. Abraham doesn't say, well, you can't do that. You're God. You would never ask me to do that. But he does. And it's even assumed in the story there in Genesis, not to get sidetracked, it's assumed there even that this is a viable option because God's going to test Abraham to see if he really means it. And God, uh, Abraham rather, just goes right along with it. So, you know, it's just this whole idea here of God has a right to the firstborn. They belong to him, and he can require them if he wants to. See, this is where – and I got this from John Levinson years and years ago. He's got this great book on the resurrection of the beloved son, it's called. And uh, he was a podcast guest a couple years ago, and we didn't talk about this. But this idea that in, in the New Testament – this is a Jewish scholar, by the way – in the New Testament, in the gospel and the sacrifice of Jesus, God actually went through with it. God actually claimed the firstborn, but it was his own. It wasn't yours. See, it's a reversal of this theme where God takes something of value to himself, and uh, to use New Testament language, at least that some authors use, sacrificed him for the good of the whole. Right? So, it's a reversal. It's not use. It's not God taking your firstborn. It's God giving of his own firstborn son. So, this is, you know, you get things like God gave his only begotten son. That's not just sentimental. That is a reversal of an Old Testament theme that you see here in the Exodus story. So, the Exodus isn't just like previewing the gospel. The gospel actually takes parts of this Exodus story and turns it on its head, which is a lot of what the New Testament does. Anyway, folks, I've had fun. Hey, listen, we're going to come to an end here. We've covered a lot of ground. And the next episode, we'll look at the, the, the trek to Sinai, which starts in chapter 14, and, and the actual departure from Egypt. We'll talk about that. This actually begins in the second half of 13 and through 14 and 15, and then through 19, this, this movement, this trek from Egyptian slavery to the foot of Mount Sinai. And then in the rest of the podcast, we'll look at the, last, the second half of the book, chapters 20 to 40, which really are about two things. They're about laws for how to behave and laws for how to worship. And interrupting that, which I mentioned earlier, is the Golden Calf episode, which is, is a pivotal moment in this story and almost derails everything were it not for Moses' quick thinking and convincing God to go through with delivering them and bringing them to the promised land. Interestingly enough, just as God had convinced Moses earlier on, come along, do this. Now, Moses is in the position later on in the book of Exodus to say, um, no, you're going to go through with this. <laughs> You know, drag me out here just to leave me hanging. We're, we're going to do this the way you said, and it's sort of an interesting relationship between God and Moses. Anyway, that's for the weeks to come. We'll see when this ends, but I'm anticipating a few more episodes here talking about Exodus. Listen, folks, uh, thanks for listening. As always, we deeply appreciate you listening to the podcast and being patrons on our Patreon uh, page and for all the other things that you do and that make this so pleasurable for me and for Jared. We just have a great time. So thank you. And until next time, blessings.
Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big. 